0: Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is Sarah Evans, and I'm the Senior Community and Account Executive here at the Leaders Performance Institute. I am delighted to be joined by two brilliant guests today on the podcast Pippa Wolven, an ex athlete who competed in the 2014 Commonwealth Games, and CEO, founder, and director of Project Red S, and James Morton, a professor of exercise metabolism at Liverpool John Moores University, and also the Director of Performance Solutions at Science and Sport. He's also authored over 160 research publications and worked within elite professional sport in performance support roles with teams such as Liverpool Football Club and Team Sky. We're going to be chatting to Pippa and James today about RED-S, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, and how important understanding energy availability is, and the causes around why many athletes drop into energy deficit. But before we jump into the conversation, I just wanted to make you all aware of an upcoming virtual roundtable we have on the 6th of September, which will be a member case study on environmental profiling with Dan Jackson, the head of leadership and culture at the Adelaide Crows AFL team. The session will focus on the relationship between environmental profiling and evolving team culture. And finally, we're really excited about our upcoming members-only event at Loughborough on the 21st and 22nd of September, entitled Interdisciplinary Performance Support. If you'd like to sign up to either of these, please do get in touch with a member of the team. Now let's get into the conversation. Okay, so Pippa, it'd be great if you could kick things off by telling us a bit about your journey as an athlete and coming to understand Red S.
1: Mm, So I've been an athlete for as long as I can remember. I come from a really sporty family and I'm the youngest of four. So we all played sport from a young age and I found running through the school cross country when I was about 13, got roped into the local league races and joined my local club. And I enjoyed other sports, but running seemed to be my thing. It was what I was able to beat my older siblings at and it was a fun environment, competitive, but not too serious. And it was only when I was around 17 that I decided to take it a bit more seriously, started getting some success winning the English schools and qualifying for the World Juniors. So it seemed to be that running was my sole focus for a while. Um, I went off to the University of Birmingham and continued to make really gradual progress there under the guidance of the legendary Bud Baldaro. And I was getting scholarships from American universities at this time, but felt like I wasn't ready to take that next step in terms of training or lifestyle. Um, It was definitely the right move for me to go to a British university first, find my feet and increase my training volume a little bit, but very gradually. But after two years in Birmingham, I was starting to reach a point where I felt ready to take the next step. I was offered a scholarship at one of the best NCAA distance running universities in America. And it was too good to refuse. It was a dream come true. And off I went um, without much hesitation. And I experienced quite a change in lifestyle over there. The training was much more intense. The team environment was very different. And there were all sorts of differences, just different supermarkets, different routines. And unfortunately, my team at the time had adopted this clean eating policy, which was um, quite common, actually, at the time. Uh, It sounds crazy now when we've made so much progress in sport in terms of nutrition. But um, back then it was quite serious. In the lead up to the racing season, we would eat cleanly, which means cutting out anything unnecessary or deemed as unnecessary and anything, quote unquote, unhealthy, which was unfortunate because at that time I was increasing my training volume, as I say, and balancing other stresses and being away from home. And that fuel was what I depended on to maintain this energy balance to keep me training. So sure enough, eventually I ended up winding down this spiral of low energy availability, was incredibly fatigued. I kept getting frequent illnesses, injuries that i had never experienced before. I was not injury prone or particularly ill prone, but suddenly these things seemed to seemed to just happen out of nowhere. And nobody really knew what was wrong with me. I had distanced myself from my well-established support team back at home. And we only really had a team doctor to fall back on in America. And he didn't really know why I was experiencing anemia or fatigue or low moods. And so I just plowed on, you know, desperately hoping that it would pass and I'd be able to continue training and competing. And of course it didn't. And I, um, ended up in a pretty severe state of red S without knowing even what the condition was. And it was only when I did some research on the internet did I eventually stumble across the term several years after it had started, because back when I was experiencing the initial symptoms, red S wasn't even a term. It hadn't been coined by the International Olympic Committee. And the only thing I could vaguely relate to was the female athlete triad, which actually didn't seem to apply to me because at the time I wasn't having bone stress injuries. I didn't know what my bone density was. I didn't identify with an eating disorder despite severely restricting my food intake because I still ate three meals a day and I ate snacks and I thought I was just doing exactly what every elite athlete did to reach the top in sport. And I also did not know I was missing my natural period because I was using the contraceptive pill. And had always been encouraged to use that to maintain this false sense of security around a natural menstrual cycle. So yeah, that was my journey from the beginning of sport into Red S. And um, it was a pretty rocky road trying to climb out of that, but was lucky enough to find the support that I needed once I realised what was wrong. And yeah, it took several years to recover and it will forever, you know, the scars of that experience will forever remain, but I'm lucky enough to say I'm in a happy, healthy place now and um hoping to help other people avoid the same pitfalls.
0: Brilliant. Well yeah it's, it's great that you're so eloquently able to talk through your story and, and be able to help others along with that because like you said, it's so unknown. Lots of this with with Red S is, is relatively new and many people have experienced it but actually maybe don't realise that they have. So James, I was wondering whether you could kind of take us through what some of the the main causes of Red S are and and how we maybe support athletes that suffer with it.
2: Yes, for sure. Well, first of all, thanks, Pippa, for sharing your story there. And I think the answer to that question is, is some clues were actually in Pippa's testimony, so to speak. I guess the place to start really is to introduce the concept of energy availability, which is slightly different from energy balance, which the majority of us are all familiar with, but energy availability by definition is essentially energy intake minus the amount of energy that you expend during exercise on that particular day. And then the number that's left, you divide that by the amount of fat-free mass that an athlete has. So I don't want to get too scientific here, of course, but just want to introduce that concept. And within the scientific literature, depending on a lot of the research that has been done over the years in both males and females, it's slightly different. But generally, we would say that if you're left with greater than 45 kilocals per kilogram fat-free mass, then you're in sufficient energy availability. If you're less than 30, then you're approaching what we would say is low energy availability. Now, why is that important? Well, the energy that's left is essentially the energy left to support the rest of your body. So all of those organs, all of those different systems, whether that's the immune system, the reproductive system, as Pippa alluded to, And so if you go back to that equation, essentially when you consider the causes of low energy availability then, it's pretty much because someone is not consuming enough energy intake in relation to the amount of exercise that they're doing on that particular day. So the cause can either be low energy intake, the cause could be excessive energy expenditure, or more in actual fact is of course a combination of both. The phrase that I often use when I'm coaching athletes is to try and fuel for the work required, which essentially means you increase your, your fuel, you increase your energy intake, depending on the work that is required on that particular day or the next day or the day after. And it's just a simple coaching analogy of trying to help athletes almost match their energy requirements to their energy expenditure.
0: Brilliant. <laughs> That's very scientific, but equally really interesting and able to, for us all to understand. So thanks very much. And it seems like there can be both intentional, but also unintentional ways in which athletes can enter into Red S. Pippa, would you mind telling us a little bit more about that?
1: Mm, Definitely. So I think that Red S is a brilliant term because it encompasses both pathways into this condition. The first being a more intentional energy restriction, often in an attempt to lose weight or to meet the expectations of body composition that society might establish for us especially in weight category sports or those where there is a focus on aesthetics like gymnastics ballet distance running you know and especially for performance like cycling or where there is a power to rate ratio. And that, of course, can be paired with excessive training or high training volumes to begin with, which is the catalyst for a chronic energy deficit, or the more unintentional side of things where you simply just underestimate the amount of nutrition required for your activities on a daily basis. I think a lot of athletes aren't well informed enough, especially females, about the energy demands that their sport might place on them. And when that's paired with a active lifestyle and traveling around and commuting via active transport, these things can easily add up into, again, a low energy availability. And so in my case, it was a a bit of a mix of both. I was increasing my training volume and restricting my energy intake. Um, So it was the perfect storm of factors that led to this chronic energy deficit.
0: Amazing. And and James, you've conducted many a lot of research in the past, but you've done some recently with the lionesses around their carbohydrate availability. Can you tell us a bit more about that research and what your your key findings were, and if anything surprised you about the research?
2: Yeah, I think it's a good point that you actually make there, Sarah. You introduced the word carbohydrate, and for me, that's critical really because when we start to talk about low energy availability, I think a lot of the research in the last few years is all pointing to the fact that it's not actually low energy, it's low carbohydrate availability. And so therefore, from a treatment perspective, that's probably the macronutrient that we should be focusing on. But to go back to your question around some of the recent research on the the lionesses, we did a couple of studies, really. We did one that was led by James Mohan and Chris Rosimus at the FA in collaboration with Liverpool John Moores. And we essentially quantified the energy intake and the energy expenditure of those players during a competitive schedule. And what we observed really was that the players were consuming insufficient carbohydrate intake in relation to the physical demands of match play. We quantified the energy expenditure. We found that, you know, the day before game, which is pretty important for fueling up for for a match, we found that only one of the 23 players was actually consuming sufficient energy intake and I should say sufficient carbohydrate intake. We just followed that up with a study by um, Sam McAfee who's undertaking his PhD and that's a relationship between again the FA, Liverpool John Moores, and Science and Sport, the industry partner and we were trying to explore some of the reasons why do female athletes but female soccer players potentially underfuel. and again I think Pippa has highlighted some of this, it can be intentional, it can be unintentional. And there was lots of different reasons. It's probably appropriate to introduce a a behavioral model, actually, that we call the COMB framework, where C stands for capability, O is opportunity, M is motivation. And all of those three factors can then influence someone's behavior. So what we found, actually, was in the capability side of things, in many situations, players and key stakeholders lacked the psychological capability, which is the knowledge. So they're just ill-informed of how many calories or how much carbohydrate they require. In many situations, they lacked the physical capability. So perhaps they knew what they should be consuming, but they didn't have the skills to go and physically prepare food. On the opportunity side of things, and I think this is really interesting because it relates to some of the earlier sentiments that Pippa shared, was there's something called the social opportunity, which is the cultural norms of the environment now Pippa mentioned that that phrase that we've all heard before clean eating and so in the culture of her environment back then that cultural norm almost prevented her from eating what she should have been consuming at that time and within the professional soccer environment there's almost a culture exists around body composition so the cultural norms is let's measure everyone's skin folds and as a result then there's a there's a fear around fueling correctly there's also the physical opportunity. We explored some players who said that they would like to eat more, but there was no food left because the men had already eaten it. So within that particular sporting environment, it was almost like the females were, were catered for after. They were an afterthought. And then finally, and this is perhaps the most important one, is the motivation. So as we all know, motivation can be reflective because we have beliefs about um, consequences. So in many scenarios, the players had a belief that carbohydrate made them fat and so therefore they didn't want to consume carbohydrate or motivation can be automatic we all have those um, impulses and desires we crave foods but sometimes we actually stay away from foods because we don't like the taste of them so there could be an example where a player knows what food they should be consuming but perhaps they don't like the taste of the food that's available or they maybe even don't even like the food that's available and the reason why I'm sharing that model is because now you're beginning to hopefully understand that you can diagnose someone's current behavior to understand the problem but then that allows you to then start to think about what might the behavioral solution look like in order to bring about the desired behavior which in this example is simply fueling more
1: just to jump in there i think that is so important because we live in a society which vilifies carbohydrates and especially among women and that filters into the sports environment and where you know that is the most important nutrient or fuel source for active females and males alike it's often avoided because of the belief system that we buy into as athletes
0: yeah that's that's so interesting and um and I think it leads on to a wider piece around sport in general around team cultures and actually it feeds into that culture and Pippa I wonder whether you could talk to us a little bit about ways around the actual culture of a team can impact Red S and obviously James has touched on it there but In particular, what can coaches or practitioners do to be aware of when working with athletes to make sure that they're not unintentionally actually adding to the causes of
1: Red S? Mm. Well, team culture is incredibly important and plays a huge role in the behaviour and mindset of an athlete, especially when it's a high performing team or a particular athlete is surrounded by others they look up to. Um, and unfortunately, one of the initial perhaps side effects of falling into an energy deficit might include weight loss, which then may lead to a short term performance improvement due to the power to weight ratio. And that is definitely not sustainable um, and leads to some very undesirable health consequences. But it can be easy for athletes in the team environment to confuse correlation with causation and believe that that particular teammate of theirs is performing well because of the way that they're behaving or fueling or training. And that belief system can spread very easily in a team and so can habits. And if you know a team is fueling well around their training, you can see that throughout. Whereas if A team are all buying into this clean eating ethos and all restricting. It's incredibly common that that is shared among them. And coaches and practitioners have a huge part to play as well. They are incredibly influential for an athlete. Their actions and words and behaviours all contribute to creating an environment which can not only perpetuate the problem, but also help prevent it. And coaches are best placed to recognise the warning signs um, and even to signpost athletes towards the right support system. So it's really important for them to have an understanding of this problem, this common problem that is pretty, in my opinion, under-recognized and poorly understood. So if coaches know what might lead an athlete into Red S in the first place or any kind of energy deficit, then they can help combat that with simple questioning. You know, have you got a snack for after training? Do you know where to find nutritional advice that is going to serve you well? They can also help athletes avoid over-analysis of numbers or avoid some of the traps that they might fall into around more is more in terms of training and less is more in terms of nutrition. And they can just help athletes strike a healthy balance between training and other aspects of their life and just fueling for health and sustainability in sport rather than short-term success. Definitely.
2: Yeah, I I would agree completely. I, I think it's important to almost remind people that nutrition is the basis of all physical performance. And when you're working in a sporting team, certainly with a multidisciplinary team, there is a massive education and alignment piece that needs to happen, whether that's the coaches, the medical team, the sports science, sports psychology, physiotherapy team, educating every member of that team that actually nutrition can help those guys do their job well. Because an underfueled athlete can't make the correct decisions. They're more likely to get ill. Um, They're more likely to suffer from poor sleep quality. They certainly won't be able to perform physically day after day. And so actually, if your athlete is fueled well consistently, then it makes you as a support staff member, it makes your job certainly a lot easier. And it gives everyone a greater chance of success. So I I often joke that nutrition should be the first (laughs) hire for any performance director, but, but it's not a joke. It's probably the biggest return of investment that you could ever have within a multidisciplinary team. Yeah,
0: thanks, James. And that's it's something that's a, a topic that keeps coming up time and time again here at the Leaders Performance Institute is how you can really have those multidisciplinary teams working together with the athlete at the centre and not working in silos and actually exactly that, educating each one of them. And I was wondering when you were working obviously with, with Team Sky, what were some of the challenges that you did face as part of that multidisciplinary team when trying to prevent the low energy availability?
2: Well, I had, I had a fantastic time at Team Sky just I'm just thinking of memories there as you pose that question, actually. Cycling is a sport, as Pippa mentioned before, where weight can be the difference between winning and losing. Now I say that that you can be too heavy, but you can also be too light. And the magnitude of weight loss or weight gain that I'm referring to can be as little as one to two kilograms. So first of all, within the cycling world, the lens is 100% on nutrition. So I was quite lucky in that Everyone is engaged to start with on the role of nutrition in supporting performance. However, when an athlete loses weight, initially they often feel better about themselves. They look better. They feel better. Quite often they start to perform better in that early weight loss period. And then they think, well, this is great. I've got to keep on this journey. And then that's when problems happen. And that's when you can lead to extreme weight loss for a sustained period of time. Now the Tour de France as an event actually happens in July, but the season really starts in December or January. You've kind of got like your six-month performance plan, and believe it or not, some guys try and get down to race weight far too early on in the season. Geraint Thomas, as as an example, he spoke about this publicly before. But I often used to joke with Geraint that you don't win the Tour in January, you win it in July, because he was an an example of an athlete who used to be all in go all in too soon and we were constantly trying to rein him back but it wasn't just me trying to rein him back it was everyone in in that performance team coaches the team principal the wider support staff because we were all aligned on the messages and so like I mentioned before about that stakeholder alignment we spent hours and hours and hours educating everyone in the team on the dangers and the pitfalls of going into extremes too quickly And I'm really glad that we did because that communication journey was worth everything. All of those times that we spent, we we got it back later on in the season, really, because everyone was aligned.
0: Yeah, again, you're touching on so many of the topics that that come up so regularly here uh, with leaders in terms of that alignment and that vision and all pulling together to the same outcome is essentially, I think, one of the, the key things that underpin success. But I guess so many of these issues can be embedded from such a a young age and that culture piece as well around um, societal norms. So Pip, what ways can we be proactive in preventing some athletes from dropping into this energy deficit and how can we give tools to young athletes coming through the pathways in a way which is performance driven, but human focused? Mm.
1: Well, just as James spoke about, it's such a team effort. I think every athlete needs to be part of a support system which has their best interests um, in terms of long term health and performance and not just short term success. And that requires support from a nutritionist or dietitian or psychologist and physiologist. And, you know, elite athletes are lucky enough to have those sorts of resources on tap, which is great if they're pulling together to help prevent this issue from arising in the first place. But athletes who are perhaps sub-elite are just as susceptible to falling into issues of low energy availability. And indeed, those who are, just, who are just recreational, it's a really common problem among recreational athletes who don't have that support system. So for them, it's even more important to inform themselves about these issues, about what they should be fueling, and to get their nutritional advice from the right kind of sources. There are so many myths and misconceptions out there about how to fuel as somebody who is active or somebody who participates in sport especially for women whose nutritional information is often based on that of males whereas now we know it's incredibly different and so i think the more we can do in terms of education awareness and understanding of these issues the better and every sport stakeholder every athlete coach parent and healthcare practitioner has to be aware of the dangers of underfueling and not just focused on body composition for performance.
2: Yeah I, I think that's you've made some great points there Pippa and one of the stakeholders that you mentioned for me is, is so important which is parents. I, I'll give you another example Sarah if you don't mind uh, this time put yourself in the shoes of a parent who has an academy soccer player whether that's male or female. So academy players typically train in the evening periods from 5pm to perhaps 8pm. Now when you consider when they finish school, they don't finish school until 3 or 3.30. So they're rushing home from school to get ready for training, then they're rushing to the training ground, they're training, and then by the time they come home after training, it's 8 o'clock, 8.30, which for a 12-year-old, it's time to go to sleep. So the last time they may have had a real high-quality meal could be in school at lunch And then, of course, we all know the problems with school meals as well. And so really, you put yourself in the shoes of a parent then. What can you do when they leave school to get them fueled correctly for training? And what can you do when they come home from training to recover them correctly so they can go again the next day? And sometimes it's as simple as just emphasising the timing of food, the types of food, and so on, and really like almost seeing it as pit stops. This is a fueling pit stop when you need to fuel. This is another recovery pit stop and so on. And we have done lots of research with academy players over the years. And we see that that specific time of day is the time when they really under fuel. So if there are any parents listening to this, and hopefully there is, hopefully that just makes you think a little bit more practically about what times in the day does my son or my daughter actually really need to dial in and what can I do to teach them? Because nutrition for me isn't particularly hard. I think it's the easiest discipline of all. Um, and these are things that we sh- really should be teaching at that young adolescent age.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly that. And I think it's that education piece. You realize how much embedded those, even just the little habits that you might pick up from that early age and how much they can affect you when you travel through into your senior careers. And if you can put in the right tools when you're younger, it's going to have a bigger impact when they're further down the line. You don't have to necessarily put in all these interventions to undo maybe some of those bad habits that have happened earlier on and it's such a small thing just to be aware like you say from parents of actually when they might need to fuel and and how much I think so many people don't realize actually how much fuel and the right fuel of those carbohydrates that you actually have to intake to to be able to be
1: optimizing your performance Mm, and just to sort of jump in here from a behavioral perspective I think parents also have a major role to play in terms of de-emphasizing body weight and appearance for young athletes who are developing. I think a lot of athletes who go through puberty might fear that they'll never reach their performance goals because of the way their body is changing. And parents are best placed to pick up on any disordered behaviors or beliefs that might start um, in a young athlete. And also just play a good role model for them not to focus in on other athletes weight and performance and draw comparisons you know parents athletes look up to them and they're in a really important position to get the messaging right around body weight and and nutrition as well brilliant and
0: Pippa what advice do you have for other athletes who are training with or in a team with others who might be in an energy deficit but potentially don't understand the causes the symptoms or the risks of
1: Mm. It's very tricky, I think, as an athlete who has been in a team with others that are suffering from the initial or later side effects of Red S. It's, it's difficult because one of the symptoms is actually denial. An athlete might really struggle to put the cause of the condition with the outcome, and a teammate might not be able to relay that information in a way that the athlete can digest it because perhaps they're a competitor or You know, maybe they're fighting for selection on a team and they don't want to take in um, advice from somebody else. But I think the sooner you can start the conversation in a confidential, supportive way, the better, because we know that treatment and recovery outcomes are greatly improved with early recognition. And the sooner you can open up the conversation, the better. But expect some at least initial denial or resistance to seeking help, because that is part of the problem. And if you have noticed particular symptoms or particular instances where an athlete might have struggled with a competition or a training session, you can use that to just sort of say, I'm, I'm checking in on you to see how you're feeling, how energised are you? And do you have the support you need to see you through the season and maybe to just learn more about this condition um, and where to find professional support with it? Um, so that if an athlete is willing to seek help, they know where to go. Um, as soon as possible.
2: Yeah, I think it's super important for athletes to get credible advice, and in this day and age, we all know that <laughs> there's lots of ill-informed advice around, especially on social media. I believe that our role as practitioners is to simply coach people on how to make better decisions. And in the world of nutrition, it's a very simple question that you need to ask: Is do you know what to eat when? And if you break down your 24 hour period into little chunks of the day, and then you're faced with the decision of, right, what should I eat at this particular time over the course of weeks, months, and years, eventually the athlete then knows what to do because they've been through that coaching journey. And so again, I'm just trying to give the listener some practical examples really of trying to coach the ability to make the correct decision at the right time in terms of what food you should eat. It's honestly not as complex as what people make it out to be, I don't think.
0: Definitely. And I know one thing that you've spoken a lot about in the past as well, James, is that periodization. I know it's a term that's come up a few times, but it, it seems to be so key in terms of actually understanding what you need to eat and when.
2: Definitely, definitely. And I should also say that the periodization is especially relevant for an adult athlete who's fully mature and whose all of those biological systems are, are now fully functioning. And all that means is that you simply change what you eat day by day depending on the work that you're doing. But I do want to point out for an adolescent athlete who isn't fully mature, then nutritional periodization is a practice that they probably shouldn't undertake because of course they're growing. So that really is about emphasizing consistent fueling day by day. Even on a day when you're not training, you still eat really well because that's your day for recovery. That's your day for growth. Whereas an adult athlete, it's a totally different ball game so to speak
0: brilliant thank you so much guys that is amazing advice that i'm sure our listeners will be able to to take home and really implement into their own lives and thank you Pepper, so much for sharing your own journey and just having these conversations i'm sure we'll be able to help others either recognize that maybe they might be struggling with red s or also just signpost them into to ways in which they can get support for it so thank you very much for the conversation guys it's been brilliant
2: thank you
1: yeah thank you very much for the opportunity